I'd like you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The title for today's sermon is Repentance. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about this in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Let me read this text to you. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, although I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Paul made three promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 16, he promised that God will dwell among them. He will dwell among his people. In uh, verse 16, 18a, the first half of verse 18, uh, he said that, that he'll be their father. And in the second half, he said that they will be his sons and daughters. So they're great promises. God is going to dwell among you. I'll be your father. You'll be my sons and daughters. But in between verse 16 of chapter 6 and verse 18 of chapter 6 is what? Very good. Thank you. Somebody give that man a cookie. <laughs> We've got plenty left downstairs. And verse 17 says this. Check this out. 
There, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. So you got these promises and this warning. And the warning is from Isaiah chapter 52. And in Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah is talking to the Jews who have been exiled to Babylon. They've been there for 70 years. He's trying to encourage them to come back. He wants them to come back to Jerusalem. Eventually, Nehemiah and Ezra are going to come back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and set up the priesthood again and everything. But, but Isaiah is trying to encourage those exiles not to be tainted by the culture that they've been living in. They've been living in a pagan culture for 70 years. He's saying, it's time to come home. Don't bring the filth with you. Don't don't bring the influences of that culture. He's not telling them not to be part of the culture. He's just saying, you should be the ones that are influencing rather than the ones that are influenced. And when you come home, when you come back to the land that God gave you, don't bring their baggage with you. Well, Paul's saying the same thing. So he, he, he wants them to be, he wants the Corinthians to be separate from the culture as much as is possible while still living in it. And he wants them to willfully avoid touching unclean things. Now, he's not saying you have to be perfect. He's not saying don't touch anything filthily. He's saying that don't, don't indulge in it. Don't go chasing after it. Don't, don't make it your point to get immersed in unclean things. So embedded in these beautiful promises of fatherhood and sonship and, and dwelling among them is, is this warning. It's an encouragement to lead holy lives. He wants them to be pure. Isaiah wanted the exiles to be pure. Paul wants the Corinthians to be poor, pure. Well, that's, that's great. We all know we're supposed to lead holy lives. Uh, we all know what the goal is. We all know that we're supposed to honor God and how we walk. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and have accepted him as Lord and Savior, want to be able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling out of Ephesians. question is, how do you do this? How, how, do you, how do you avoid touching unclean things when we live in filth? How do, we, how do we live lives that are pure when we ourselves are not pure? Well, Paul kind of has an unusual answer for this, and he, he, he kind of approaches it in a, in a different way. So, in preparing for Paul's answer, I've got an unusual question for you, and this is what I want you to consider this morning, okay? Where do you find your comfort? Where do you find your comfort? Now, I, I want you to just not, I, I, you know, it's not like, well, I sit on a pillow, okay? Where do you find your peace? What brings you joy? What brings you happiness? What, maybe in particular, where do you find your comfort when you're in the middle of a difficult situation? So Paul's going to answer this in an unusual way, and uh, it has a lot more with staying pure than you might think. Uh, But in chapter 7, Paul's going to begin walking through how they are to live their lives by staying pure. And he's going to do it by talking about three areas of comfort. And they're all going to sound fantastic, but once we get into them, you're going to find out that there are actually three areas that are very, very uncomfortable once you start considering them. So here they are. He's going to talk about the comfort of God's provision. 
Now that's in verses 1 through 6. He'll talk about the comfort of repentance. That's in seven to, uh, verse 7 through 13a. And then he'll talk about the comfort of Christian fellowship. That's in 13b through 16. Now, that, I will guarantee you, the comfort of Christian fellowship is not what you're thinking right now. Okay, so Paul's going to challenge him on these things. So let's start out by seeing how the comfort of God's provision can help us lead holy lives. So 2 Corinthians uh, 7 verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's clarifying this this, uh, uh, encouragement that he laid out in chapter 6, verse 17. And what, what he means here is that we're to strive for holiness. Now, uh, this is another one of those complexities of translation. The translation is accurate here, but I'm not sure the intent is as accurate as it could be. Uh, the NIV says that they should be perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And you have all these weird things going on with the tenses in the Greek and everything, but if we were to give you a literal translation here, it would be you should be perfecting and uh, you should be perfected and be perfecting in the holiness of God. So he's describing a process. You know, we're, we're to strive for holiness, but we're not yet holy. We're to strive for perfection, but we're not yet perfect. We are to strive for cleansing ourselves of, of every defilement of body and spirit. But that's going to be a struggle at times. So Paul recognizes this. He's not asking us to be perfect, but he's telling us that we should have deep down inside us a desire to be closer to God. We should have uh, deep down inside of us a desire to, to strive for that perfection uh, and looking forward to the day that we will indeed be perfected when we stand before him in glory. So the, the idea here is, the, is ongoing action. Um, you know, if, if I were to try to explain it in words that were more clear to me to understand, it would be practicing holiness, practicing cleanliness. So now in order to kind of lay this out and tell them how to do that, Paul begins using himself as an illustration. And this is something that we've seen and do in 2 Corinthians a number of times. Paul literally keeps on saying, look at me, look what I'm doing. See, there's this tension. There's been trouble between Paul and the Corinthian church. And, uh, you know, we, we've been through it a number of times. He sets up his credentials as a, an apostle and a teacher. Um, he, he says that he knows who they are. He knows their heart. He knows Christ is in them. And he's trusting in Christ in them and Christ in him to get them through this tension. Uh, but now Paul's deep into the teaching. And he's, try, and he's trying to show them how to walk it out. And he's saying, literally, he's walking through the tension and saying, watch what I do. We're both aware, we're all aware of the tension that's occurring here. Watch what I do because I'm going to try the best I can to handle this, this tension in a godly fashion. So he says, since we have these promises, let's cleanse ourselves. Then he says, make room in your hearts for us. Now he told them in, in chapter 6, widen your hearts. He's saying, I'm not limited in my love for you, but you have limited yourself in your love for me. I understand it's happening. Open up your hearts. Make yourselves vulnerable. And then he says, we have wronged no one. This is Paul using the royal we. Uh, we have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. And what Paul is doing is saying, 
You look at these guys that have come into your church and started giving me a hard time. They're criticizing me. And you look at the fruit of what they have produced in the church. And look at the fruit that I've produced. You know, I came in, I helped you build the church, we established it, uh, you were on the right path, and then we had some dissenters come in. People who were grumbling in the corners, people who were whispering in the hallways, and people who were complaining about things. And look what's happened. People have been wronged. They've been taken advantage of. I haven't done any of this. Now, you know, we need to understand how this works because we've seen it happen. Anybody that's ever belonged to a church bigger than four or five people knows what, we're, what Paul's talking about here. And so you look at, you know, every now and then people will rise up and start complaining. And what will happen is you, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it over in court. Did you hear what he said? You know, I heard they did this. I heard they're going to do that over there. I heard they're, they're hiding something from you. you know? and, and so the fruit of those complaints, the, what, what rises up out of those whispers in the corners is always division. It's always frustration. And if it's allowed to go on long enough, it becomes anger. So Paul is literally saying, look around you. Look what's happened. These guys have come in. They've got everybody upset. Now people are getting hurt. Look at the fruit of what is happening because it's not good fruit. So we need to be objective when these things happen and, and, and understand that it's there to undermine. You know, it's a device of the enemy that is there to undermine the gospel. And you know what happens when these things rise up in churches. Everybody starts talking about them. They get so distracted the only thing that doesn't happen is the gospel doesn't get preached. Well, we got to settle this. Paul's saying, be careful of that. He said, and he says, I don't say this to condemn you. He's not judging them. Paul's not hitting them from a self-righteous thing. He knows what their hearts are. He said, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, you got to look at that phrase because there's a lot more in there than it looks. Paul's saying, we're supposed to be in unity. We're supposed to be one in Christ, one with each other. We die together, we, we live together, we, we, we suffer together. When you cry, I cry. When I cry, you cry. We celebrate together, but check this out. We die to, each, to ourselves together. We treat each other as more important than ourselves. We elevate Christ above all things, not my own personal interests, not my agenda. And when the friction comes... We humble ourselves and say, no, you're more important than me. Paul says, this is how we live in unity. This is how we move forward together. We're taking care of each other. We're not butting heads with each other. And then he says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. What? what huh? <laughs> what I'm acting with great boldness towards you? You've got to remember that there's this tension. There's been all of this grumbling. The Corinthians have been a spur in, in the saddle of Paul for a long time. He wrote 1 Corinthians because they thought they were mature. They thought they were a grown church. And 1 Corinthians is a corrective. Now, there's another letter. We'll talk about it in a second. And then that letter was even harsher. Okay? So there's all this tension. And Paul says, I, I'm... I'm bold for you. I have, listen, 
great pride in you. Did you hear that? I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. See, if you're not reading that in, in the context of the tension between Paul and the Corinthian church, you're not getting what Paul's doing. And so let me take this home for you. The next time there's tension between you and someone you love, the next time that person who is so close to you says that one thing that gets under your skin. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> says that one thing that's just an arrow to your heart. The next time that happens, look at them and say, you might have to grit your teeth a little bit, I'm proud of you, and I take great joy in the fact that God has put you in my life. Say it like you mean it. And you watch what happens. Now, one thing I will guarantee you would happen, a couple other things might happen. One thing that might happen is the other person might get even madder. Okay. But you know how that goes. Well, if now if you're going to be mad, if you didn't see what a great thing I just did, then I'll be mad too. Okay, so, so you can't respond to that. But here's what will happen. I'll guarantee you, in your heart that urge to strike back, that urge to lash out, that urge to create pain where pain has been caused to you, it'll just go away. I'm, I'm proud of you. I take great joy in you. I thank God for you. I know, see, this is what Paul's doing. I know Christ is in you. I know Christ is in me. And I know this is a tough moment. I know we're having some difficulty right here, but I know that Christ is going to get us through it. So I'm going to choose not to hold on to this offense and return what you've just done with a blessing. Now, you can't say, I'm going to return what you've just done with a blessing. Please don't do that. <laughs> okay? But if your heart attitude is, I'm not going to respond to this pain, I'm going to respond like Christ did. Forgive them, Father, they knew not what they do. See, that's what Paul's doing. For Paul, the tension goes away. And what do you think the Corinthians felt like? Did he, did he just say he was proud of us? Did he just say that he takes great comfort and joy in us? I thought we were in an argument. <laughs> How do we process this? No, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on with his hardships in verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul is saying in Macedonia, we were in trouble. We're surrounded. I mean, everywhere we went, we're getting beat up. We're getting put in prison. Uh, people aren't listening to us They're everywhere but Berea. Those guys were pretty good, but you know what? It's a pretty small town. Everybody else is mad at us. So we're fighting. There was fear in the camp because we didn't know what was going to happen next. Then he says this in verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, I want you to see what's happened here. Paul just said, I thank God that you, the Corinthian church, are in my life. Because I'm going through a rough time. 
I was surrounded in Macedonia. But Titus showed up. Now, I love when people show up unexpectedly in my life when I need a blessing. You know, know, David's a wonderful guy. Uh, Every now and then he'll come over and say something to me. And and I want, you know, I have this urge to go, David's a great guy. Thank you, David. You just ministered to me. That's fantastic. Look what Paul does. Paul doesn't thank Titus. Did you catch that? He thanks God. He thanks God for sending Titus. And what does Titus have with him? He has this encouragement from the church at Corinth. Now, we're getting that in just a little bit, but I want you to see that, that Paul is thanking God for the provision of Titus. Paul is saying, good things are coming into my life, even though I'm in a difficult time, and I'm going to thank God for all that's in my life, whether it's good or bad, because I know that he intends to do something good in my life with this. No credit goes to Titus. No credit goes to the Corinthian church. All the credit, all the glory goes to God. Paul was comforted by God's provision, but he was in a tough point in his life. He was anything but comfortable. And the magic, the the, the beautiful thing that happens here in Paul's heart is that Paul is thankful for what he has, and he's not resentful for what he doesn't have. Did you catch that? Paul's like, I want to be free. I don't want to be in prison. He could have been like that. I I don't want to be beat up anymore. I I want people to listen to me. I want to see the fruit of my ministry. I don't don't see the fruit. I don't have the freedom. I I, I can't move around the way I want to. Why is God doing this to me? Now, that's how the typical person would respond to that. Paul goes, well, let me see what I can be thankful for. Uh, I can be thankful that Paul sent Titus, or that God sent Titus. I can be thankful that the Corinthian church seems to have some favor with me, although there's some tension. Now, that'll change your aspect. That'll change your, your perspective on life if you stop to look around and say, what do I have to be thankful for when you don't feel thankful? I struggle a little bit with depression. It's not great. I, I, I don't have the problems some people struggle with, and I thank God for that. But there are days when I don't want to get out of bed. They're not bad days, but they're not good days. They're just nothing. And I, I, I could lay there in bed. And I, I, I prayed for years, you know, what do I do with this? And I, I, I think I picked up the answer from Scripture. Well, be thankful in all things. Can I be thankful in my depression? I don't know. But you know what? If I'm laying there in bed now, I have one of those days where I just don't want to get up and I realize that I could spend hours and hours and hours just whiling away there. You know, I, I've got to make the conscious effort. I've got uh, some participation is required. I've got to stop and go, what do I have to be thankful for? Well, I don't know if you've ever struggled with that, that type of, of, of battle, but it doesn't look like there's much to be thankful for when that happens. But if I can gather myself about me and go, thank you, Lord, that I have a bed to lie in. Thank you that there's a blanket on the bed. Thank you that there's a floor to walk on. 
thank you that I've got water coming through my spigot so I can get up and get a drink of water if I want to drink of water. And I tell you something, three or four minutes of being thankful for what you have rather than worried about what you don't have, it'll turn your heart around. And, and, and it's, not because, it's not because I'm some superpower. It's because I've turned my focus from me onto the Lord. So I'm going to look to Jesus Christ. I'm going to look to what he's doing in my life and say, I don't really like this situation very much, but you tell me to be thankful in all things. So with my mouth, I will give you thanks. Can we do that? Can we be thankful in particular when we don't feel very thankful? See, that's what Paul's trying to say in this first point. Whatever God has provided with you, be thankful for it. Don't be consumed with what you don't have. Be grateful for what you do have. Because whatever you have comes from the sovereign Lord of all creation who's given it to you. And you don't want to leave God in a position where you're sitting having all this stuff I've given you. You're not thankful for it? You want more? You know, i got to tell you something. There, there, there are thousands of things I want in my life. And I'm convinced that when I get all of them, I'm going to be happy. It has never worked in 65 years. It's not going to work in the next 65. But I'm convinced that if I could just get this stuff I'll be happy. God says, are you happy with what you got? Being thankful in God's provision will bring us comfort rather than being resentful or frustrated. Now, that's fantastic with, that's fantastic with material stuff. Amen? We all get that, right? Take this down to a personal level. Take it down to your relationships. Are you thankful for the people that God has put in your life? Or are you mad because they're just not who you thought they were? Are you disappointed in them? You ever disappointed in your kids? They didn't turn out the way you thought they were. Disappointed in your spouse? He or she's just not living up to your expectations. Disappointed in your parents? I had a father that was abusive. I had, I had a mother that was distant or whatever. Turn that around and say, Father, thank you. Thank you for giving me a spouse. Thank you for giving me kids. Thank you for giving me a mother and father. What could I learn from my mother and father? I know they weren't perfect. What were you trying to teach me in them? Can I be thankful for the people that are closest to me that disappoint me? And if the answer is no, then look at your relationship with the Father and see if the by any chance you have disappointed him and whether or not he has chosen to shed his grace upon you regardless of whether or not you've earned it. Be thankful in what God provides and you'll find comfort there. Second area of comfort is in repentance in verses 7 through 13a. Now, most people don't generally uh, associate repentance with comfort, uh, but Paul's going to show us where we can find comfort. I mean, we all know we're supposed to repent. We, we get that. Those of us that have been going to church for a while know that confession and repentance are, are important. Uh, but let's look at what Paul says here. Verse 7, uh, the Corinthians comforted Titus. And now, this is the news that Titus brought. The Corinthians were zealous they were energetic. They were filled with excitement about Paul. Not everybody was mad at him. There was still tension there. But there was some acknowledgement that Paul had helped them out. And so, not everybody accused Paul, but 
there's still a little bit of a wall there. And it didn't help when Paul wrote that other letter. So apparently there was a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Now, we don't know what the letter is. We don't have it. Um, a lot of people have asked, well, if it shows up, will it be part of the Bible? No, no. I, I mean, there were certain criteria uh, that had to be met. Uh, being written by an apostle or acknowledged by an apostle as authoritative, acknowledged by uh, the first century church as authoritative, uh, not in contradiction with the entire body of scripture. So whatever that, that other letter is, it was not acknowledged as authoritative by the first century church. So it's not part of the Bible. If it shows up, there's not going to be a big discussion whether or not it belongs there. Uh, so what we do know is that not everything Paul wrote was scripture. We don't have the letter. Uh, so God did not preserve that letter. What we do know is that letter was probably a bit more harsh than 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was effective. And then we have this other letter that has actually caused them some pain. Uh, it, it, it caused them to grieve. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit. It made them sorry. Um, it didn't cause them to grieve over Paul's harshness. It caused them to grieve over whatever part they played in the sin that Paul was correcting them on. This is important to understand. So we're talking about godly grief here. Uh, and we find out in verse 9 that that godly grief led them to repentance. Now, that's how we know that they were grieving over whatever part they played in the sin Paul was addressing, because they repented. Look at verse 9 very carefully. As it is, Paul says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, most people associate grief with loss, right? We grieve over people that have gone on. We grieve over material things that we've lost. Maybe there was a storm. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe something got stolen. Uh, but Paul's talking about godly grief. And apparently there's something different about godly grief because when, God, when godly grief rises up, there is no loss. So he explains himself in verse 10. For godly grief, listen produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's this difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And Scripture shows us both. And we've got to dig a little bit deep to find it, but it's there. Godly grief leads to a number of good things. And one of the things that godly grief leads to is life. And we see that in David's case. If you remember what happened uh, after David had suffered, uh, had won all of these victories, uh, he decided to stay home in the springtime when other kings go to battle. And while everybody's out fighting, David's up on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. So he sends for Bathsheba and he has relations with her, except Bathsheba is married. Now David is worried that Bathsheba is going to have his baby and Bathsheba's husband is out fighting the war that David should have been fighting. So he calls Uriah home and he says, well, well Uriah, why don't you go spend some time with your wife? You know, wouldn't it be good for you to see your wife, you know? 
And Uriah's like, no, no, I'm in the middle of fighting a war. I can't do that. You know, it would dishonor you. It would dishonor God. David tries three times. It doesn't work. Finally, David has Uriah killed. He says, send him out in the front lines and then draw back and let him get killed. So David literally murders Bathsheba's husband so that he can marry Bathsheba before everybody understands he's pregnant. she's pregnant. And he thinks he got away with it. He's pretty confident this worked out pretty well. So one of his advisors, a prophet named Nathan, comes to him and says, uh, David, I've got a problem I'm trying to work with. Um, see, uh, I heard about this guy, and he's, he's talking about a guy who stole a sheep and, uh, you know, and, and all this stuff, and David's listening, and David's getting angry as, as he described it, and, and Nathan goes, what, what, what do you think I ought to do with that guy? And David says, smite him. Just, just bring him to me. I'll take care of him. And Nathan goes, that guy is you. Now, that was quite a moment for David. Because look how David reacted in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, there's an inflection here that, that has an, a connotation of extreme anguish. David's heart is broken over the sin that he's committed. I have sinned against the Lord. And notice, he, I, he doesn't say, I've sinned against uh, Uriah. I have sinned against Bathsheba. He doesn't say, I've sinned against the, the people or, or Nathan. I've sinned against the Lord. So this is David's confession. This is his act of repentance. It's him pouring himself out. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So there are going to be consequences for the sin that David has committed, and they are worldly. But David will not die. Repentance leads to life. Did you see that? David's going to live because he repented and he grieved over his sin. Godly grief can bring life, but it can also bring restoration. In Psalm 51, um, this is David probably writing about the same situation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then later on, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God is working in the depths of David, in his heart. The relationship has been restored. David is fully aware that he's committed this infraction against God, and God has graciously come in and restored the relationship. So godly repentance can bring life, it can bring restoration, and it can also bring bring regeneration. And we don't have to look any farther than the biblical narrative to see the regeneration. People become new when they repent and turn towards God. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob, who was absolutely worthless. <laughs> I mean, if you look at Jacob's life, he didn't do anything right. Stole his birthright, deceived his father, manipulated with his mother against, and, and then finally stole the blessing of his brother Esau. Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. Paul, Saul, becomes Paul. And it all happens at that moment of surrender to the Lord. 
It all happens in that moment where they recognize God as the king of their universe, as their savior. Godly grief brings comfort and peace. It brings life. It restores and it renews. And you know what? The same thing has happened to you and I, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God's created in you a new heart. He's created in you. He's made you into a new creature. Now, I know sometimes you don't feel that way. Amen? Okay? Uh, and so we, we, we still have the biblical model to look at. Abram becomes Abraham, and he's still running around lying about who he is. Jacob doesn't do everything right. He's still afraid of his brother. And he wants something really interesting. Take a look at Simon. You know, when Simon meets Christ and decides to follow him, uh, Christ says, okay, from now on, you're going to be Peter. Except throughout their entire relationship, whenever Peter acts like the old man, Christ calls him Simon. So it's like, it's like Christ looking at him going, you know, you know, I just saw what you did, Simon. <laughs> are, are you still letting the old man come through? Peter was in process. Abram was in process. Jacob was in process. We're in process. We have new hearts. We're new creatures, but we're not totally perfected yet. So God is patient. God is gracious. God is kind. Uh, but the repentance is the key to everything. That heartfelt repentance is the key to new life, towards restoration, and towards regeneration. Now, on the other hand, worldly grief and I'm going to call it guilt, does nothing but destroy. Jacob, uh, when uh, Esau finds out that Jacob has finally deprived him of the only blessing that his father was going to give, uh, Esau's grief turns to hate. Genesis 27, uh, Jacob is, is, Esau is so filled with rage that he grieves bitterly. He says this, now Esau hated Jacob. Because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. No repentance. He holds on to the bitterness. Now he's so angry, he wants to kill. In Matthew 27, Judas. Judas realizes what he's done. But you notice, he never repents. He sends the money back. He never goes, against you, Father, have I sinned. He never says, Father, forgive me for what I've done. What does he do? He kills himself. Guilt. Guilt is destructive. Repentance renews. Guilt destroys. So we know that guilt, we know that guilt is not from the Lord. I'm going to tell you how we know. And, and now we're going to reach a little bit on this. We're going to see a biblical truth here. When Pilate examines Christ just prior to the crucifixion, Pilate proclaims three times, I find no guilt in him. Now, here's the inspired scripture. A pagan finds no guilt in Jesus Christ. Oh, well, I knew that, John. He was innocent. That's why... His substitutionary death on the cross is suitable for, 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 for my sins. Yeah, we get that. But check this out. There's no guilt in Christ by the word of God three times. Christ is in us. We're in him. There's no guilt in us. 
If you're suffering from guilt, it's not from the Lord. Somebody say amen. Okay? Godly repentance, godly conviction leads to repentance. Some of us struggle so much with guilt we just can't get over. Well, I did this. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that God can forgive me for that, okay? But godly conviction leads to repentance. Repentance leads to comfort. Guilt is destructive. It'll eat you up. And the remedy for guilt for a believer is repentance, confession. The scripture tells us that once we've confessed our sins, God does what with them? He separates us from them as far as the east is from the west. No, he'll let you hold on to it, but he doesn't. Guilt is not from the Lord. Now, how do I know I've repented? There has to be a change of heart, brothers and sisters. There has to be a change of heart. And I'm going to tell you something. I run into this in counseling all the time. Somebody is sitting in front of me. And I go, wow, I sense some bitterness here. Are you mad? Yes, I am. Have you repented? Oh, yeah, I repented. And they usually do. Yeah, I repented. <laughs> Think I didn't repent? I repented. I, I repented. I repented a dozen times. He or she hasn't changed yet. You know, it's not repentance if you confess that you've repented and then you just go back doing what you've always done. Now, again, some participation is required. We have to participate in our repentance. We have to get up and, and actively work at changing our behavior. It's not the answer to everything. And when we understand that the only real change comes from the Holy Spirit, we'll understand the fullness of God's grace. But we have to move on our repentance. We can't keep bringing things up over and over and over again. So repentance is not just confession of sin. Repentance indicates that a transformation has occurred, that something has happened in the heart. And, and we have to act on that. We have to recognize that sometimes the old tapes are going to start playing over and over again, and I'm not going to respond to them. I'm not going to let that one thing get under my skin the way it always does. I'm going to turn and say, you know what? I'm proud of you. I take joy in you. <laughs> Again, watch what happens when we allow that to, to become our guideline. So do you, see, do you see how repentance can bring comfort? Freedom? How it can bring pre peace? How it can start molding your heart and changing your attitude? How it can restore? How it can regenerate? How can bring us into the presence of the Lord? So there's a difference between godly repentance and worldly grief. Godly repentance at every point will put Christ on display in our lives. It will show that God is, is in us and flowing through us. Worldly grief, like the grief that Esau exhibited, I, I can tell you, if we're going to be honest about it, it is self-centered and self-consuming. Is self-destructive. So our third area of comfort is in Christian fellowship. Now I told you this isn't what you think it is. Uh, verse 13b through 16. Here's a gist of what's happened here. Titus was refreshed by the Corinthians. Titus was refreshed by the Corinthians. Now again, 
We, we have to take it into context and understand what happened. The Corinthian church is upset with Paul. They're, they're not hating him, but there's tension there. They're having a meeting, and Titus walks in. Now, you've all been at meetings. You know what that moment looks like. Everybody turns around. Titus is standing at the door, and they go, <gasps> Paul sent him. What are we going to do? And somebody's in the corner going, well, I don't know, but I'm going to tell you something. If he says this, he's going to get a piece of my mind because I got a few things to say to Paul. And somebody else is going, yeah, well, uh, I, I don't know what to do here, but I, I hope he doesn't do this again. I hope he doesn't have another one of those letters. You know, I don't know if I can take another letter. Okay, so it's a tense moment. But check this out. And, and the Corinthians have their bright and shining moment here. They refresh Titus. They go contrary to their nature. They're upset with Paul. They're upset with his representatives. And they treat Titus in a godly fashion. Do you see? This is how Paul knows that Christ is in them. They reacted to Titus in a godly fashion. And it not only blessed Titus, it sent him back to Paul, excited about what he had seen, and it blesses Paul. They put God on display in how they treated Titus. They said, you know what? We're kind of mad. We're kind of upset. We've been kind of hurt. But God has led us into repentance, and we're going to display a heart change in the way that we greet you, Titus. And all of a sudden, the Corinthian church becomes a witness to the grace of God. Grace flowed to them, Grace is flowing from them. You know, it's easy for grace to flow from us when we're with people that we like. It's a lot harder when it's with people we don't like. Christian comfort comes from a godlike attitude. So, see, when we talk about Christian fellowship, we're not talking about just hanging out with the people you like. We're talking about hanging out with the people who are in the body of Christ, whether you like them or not. Take this a step further. We're talking about hanging out with people in the body of Christ when you don't like them. Why am I so hard on this point? You know, the name of this series is I Am Content. Let me tell you what's happening. We're in a Corinthian environment. We live in a pagan culture. We're not going to fix that, folks. We're not going to remedy the maladies of the culture. And there is a growing anger and resentment out there. Some of you have seen it. Everybody thought... Let me get a sore point here. The 2016 election was going to solve things. One side would win, the other side would concede, and everything would be fine. And it didn't. Matter of fact, things got angrier. The people that lost got upset. The people that won got upset at the people that lost for being upset. That made the people that lost more upset. 
you know, when we discover that anger begets anger, we'll be taking a giant step forward, brothers and sisters. But we live in this environment that is filled with frustration. And every day, somebody's rights have been violated and trampled upon, and I don't deserve this, and I deserve more, and I want more, and so on and so forth. And we're the church. So we started out with Jonah, the angry prophet, and now we're here with Paul, who's content in everything. And we just found out why. Paul takes comfort in everything God has given him. And because of that, the glory of God shines through Paul. That's us, brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to minister to in this environment of frustration. We're called to be patient, kind, long-suffering, We're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be part of the culture, but not immersed in it, not tainted by it. We're called to be set apart. That means to act differently. And the problem, if we're not careful, is the frustration out there will begin to permeate our homes and our church. And if we let it go on long enough, we become just like out there. Paul wants our eyes set on Christ. Paul says, I take comfort. I take joy in the people that are irritating me. Why why does he take comfort and joy in the people that are irritating him? Because it gives Paul an opportunity to put God on display. Do you realize how many opportunities we have to put Christ on display in our intimate relationships, in our extended relationships with people we don't know? He gets comfort out of what God has given him, God's provision. He gets comfort out of of repentance that brings him peace. And he gets comfort out of the fact that God is making him into a new man. We have the same blessings available to us. So the question you've got to ask today, where do you find your comfort? You find your comfort in Christ? Find it on the news. Good luck. Find it in your email box. Find it in Facebook not there. It's in Christ. We have the opportunity to be leaders, not followers. We have the opportunity to be the influencers, not the influenced. And as long as we keep our eyes on Christ, thankful for what we have, thankful for the repentance that God has granted us, and thankful for the new lives he's given us, we can give him glory and be the church in this environment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that by the presence and power of your spirit, we can do this, Father. We can't make it happen on our own, but with you in us, Father, it will flow freely. We pray, Father, that we would release it, that we would let it flow from us, Father. We would ever have our eyes set upon you, our hearts set upon you, Father, and that we would long for nothing more than to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name.
Amen.